You know, one of my favorite, uh, actually a couple of verses in the Bible, is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It's familiar verses to you, I'm sure. It say, all scripture is inspired by God, that is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Isn't that good? The word of God does it all for us. God uses his word to tell us what's wrong, right? To tell us what's right, to tell us how to make the wrong right, and to tell us how to keep the right right. That's what all that said. So that we can be who God wants us to be. That's exciting. And so from, from my perspective, it's always an exciting time to open up the Word of God and to teach the Word of God and to study the Word of God and let the Word of God work in my own heart as, as it does prayerfully in each one of our hearts. And, and you see, as we co- go through our life, what we find is that the Word of God uh, addresses all the issues that we come up with in life. Uh, every uh, good time, every hard time, it's addressed by the precepts of the Word of God. Every heresy that is out there is addressed in the Word of God. And, and that's one of the, the things that uh, is so beautiful, is that as we see different, different kinds of philosophies, as we talked about last week, we can compare these things to God's truth and, and determine by his truth, what the reality is, and know how to deal with it. Colossians 2, where we're at, uh, starting last week, uh, addresses many of the heresies that uh, were faced, of course, at that time, and we still see today. Last Sunday, we looked at intellectualism, which uh, is pagan philosophy, and we saw that it's futile because it's uh, of, the, of men, it's of the world, and it's not of Christ. And in contrast to that, we saw that Christianity is vital because in that, we have a complete Savior who is 100% God, he is 100% man, and he is, uh, has all authority. And that comp- complete Savior then can take us and turn us into complete believers, which is pretty good news, I would say. Now, what we see as we come to Colossians chapter 2, if you'll open your Bibles, verses 11 through 17, is we're going to see another one of these heresies uh, addressed. And we're going to look at the futility now of carnal ritualism, and we see that contrasted with the vitality of the Christian reality. What we're going to look at is the shadow versus the substance. And this is beautiful, okay, because this is really a place where a lot of folks struggle, and needlessly so. The night before the Battle of Milbian Bridge near Rome, Constantine, who was destined to become the emperor, uh, had a dream, had a vision. Uh, in this vision, he says that he saw in the sky a, a large cross, and this large cross had an inscription on it that said, In hoc signo vincis, which means by this sign conquer. Well, he took that as a message from God and had all of his soldiers' helmets and all of their shields inscribed with the cross. And when he went into battle the next day, he, 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 got vict- he had victory, he was victorious, and Constantine took this to mean that God had given him the victory. And as a result, what Constantine did was he immediately converted to Christianity, and then he took his army and said, okay guys, now you convert <laughs> to Christianity, and had all them do it, right? You know that's how it works, right? I command you to convert, and people do that. And then he made it the state religion, and so that everybody had to convert to Christianity, Now, several things took place because of this in history. We found that the churches moved from down in the catacombs, right, into the pagan palaces, the temples. But we also saw that the persecution of the church at that point stopped and Christianity became acceptable. Now, now a lot of people, as you can imagine, view this as a glorious uh, victory for the Christian faith, but it was really very tragic in several ways. Because what happened were, was that, that whole masses of unconverted people came into the church. And pagan ritual and pagan ceremony was blended into the Christian faith. And so pagan gods and days became Christian days, and, and sacraments and holy days were, were considered now necessary for salvation. And it became this thing that was no longer Christianity, Right? And it was this works-based salvation that exists to this day. Ritualism, of course, was not born with Constantine. 
Uh, Colossians 2 clearly addresses the failure of ritualism, and we can see that it was at least around at that point. Now, now again, just like with intellectualism, like the intellect is, using your intellect is not bad, right? It's a good thing. Uh, ritualism, ritual, ritual in and of itself is not bad. But when you take a ritual, I mean, we all do rituals, right? Everybody has some, I mean, we have a ritual, we had a ritual this morning to a certain extent, right? I mean, it's, it's, we get up, we sing, we greet, we uh, have some announcements, we do an offering. I could get up and talk for 10, 15 minutes, and then, you know, you do other things, right? So there are patterns, Lord's Table, we do it regularly, right? Uh, that is a ritual in the, in the strictest definition. But ritualism is when you take that and you make that something that's necessary as part of a means of grace or something by which you have to do it to be saved or to be sanctified. And that's where the problem lies. Raising rituals above the faith, giving it value for salvation or sanctification, and then rituals become ritualism. And it becomes another ism that ought to be a wasm, you know what I mean? Just like intellectualism. Now what's the threat of ritualism today? We see it rampant, of course, and probably the, the, most, uh, the biggest example would be the Roman Catholic Church. You see it heavily in that, that religion there. Protestants don't tend to, uh, to, to struggle as much with, with ritualism as we do with, their twi with the twin sister legalism. <laughs> Protestants tend to do that more. Uh, but this is, this is still all around us, and still this something's very important and, and, and clouds the truth of the gospel and something worth studying this morning. So let's read our passage together, but let's back up and we'll begin in verse 8 and see what is said of ritualism slash legalism, okay? See to it, verse 8, Colossians 2, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers in authority, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The, the main point, he, he gets right there after the word therefore in verse, verse 16, he, he moves to the main point, and he talks about this issue of shadows versus substance. You see, the Old Testament ceremonies and different things like that were, were foreshadowing certain realities that had not yet occurred. You understand this, right? Much of the Old Testament is pointing to what is fulfilled in the New Testament, right? You tracking with me so far? For example, the Passover, right, was looking forward to the ultimate Passover when Christ, the spotless, unblemished Lamb of God, gave his life to take away sins, not merely for a time, but perfectly, okay? And there are all kinds of pictures and, and, and types and, and shadows in the Old Testament that are pointing to a fulfillment yet to come at that time. And what these shadows and types and things like that pointed to, were they were pointing always to Christ. Now, what Paul's saying is now that Christ has come, now that the substance is here, the shadows are no longer the main thing. You tracking with me? Give me one of these if you're tracking with me. The shadows are no longer the main thing. We're not merely looking through a veil or through a mirror dimly lit, but now we see more clearly, right? Now we have Christ, and we see the realization of what the shadows were pointing to in Christ. The same idea is Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, where Paul explained that the Mosaic law acted as a tutor, right, to bring us to Christ. Once the student learns, the tutor is no longer the focus anymore, right? There's change. The law, in that case, had fulfilled its function, and now 
we're not under the Mosaic law, but we're under the law of Christ, Galatians chapter two, 6, verse 2 says. And we're expected to fulfill what our master, what our Lord commands, the law of love, the law of liberty. The shadow, you see, was not sufficient. The shadow showed us what we needed, showed us what was yet to come. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says this, For the law, since it, only, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. It was only a shadow. Now, now a shadow involves two things, okay? I'm going to give you two P's. Okay, P's and Paul. Uh, two P's that what a shadow involves. Number one, a shadow involves promise, okay? There's something to come. But secondly, the second P is a shadow involves a preview, a preview of what is coming. So, for example, if we were to walk outside, I can see outside somebody walking by, and, and you saw, uh, if I was around the corner, what I would see first if the sun was behind them is I would see their shadow coming, right? And I would know, if I saw a human-formed shadow coming around the corner, I wouldn't be thinking, you know, there's a dog coming. I wouldn't be thinking there's nobody around the corner. I would go, you know what, something's happening. There's a preview of it. There's a promise of it coming. Okay? So that's really what the shadow's about. The problem is, you don't ever want to get preoccupied with the shadow, right? Because the substance is what import, what's important. So if I came up on a Sunday morning, I saw a shadow coming around the corner, uh, I would go up and start talking to the shadow on the ground. Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church. So good to have you here. We love you at Cornerstone. You know, that, that person who is the substance would look at me talking to his or her shadow and go, what a nutcase this guy is. I think I'll go to the church around the corner. Right? That would be crazy. But that's what happens when you become ritualistic is you begin to really focus only on the shadow and miss the substance. And that's where ritualism fails. Ritualism, again, is, is excessive devotion to the rituals instead of the reality that the rituals are intended to relay. So people get all caught up in the ritual of religion without the heart of religion. They get, and, and they're sidetracked away from the reality. So it's all about, I've got to do the Mass, or I've got to take confession, or I've got to be there on the seventh day, or you know what, I've got to light a candle for Aunt Becky because, you know, what's going to happen to her now? I like what Vance Havner had to say about lighting candles. He said, when they light the candles, it's a pretty good sign that the power has gone off. <laughs> you know, if, if that's what we're counting on is a candle, we have missed it, right? So here in Colossians, Paul shows that failure, the failure of ritualism, and he contrasts it to the success of the Christian reality in order that we might not get caught in that trap. Now, the first reason, and you have this on your outline, why ritualism fails is because it cannot save the sinner. Right off the bat, that's a failure. It cannot save the sinner. Now, Paul illustrates this in verse 11, right, with the dominant ritual of the day, and he's talking, and it's circumcision. The false teachers in, that were coming into Colossae, they're also doing the same thing in Galatia and other places, pushed circumcision as something that was necessary for salvation. You've you got to be saved, you've got to be circumcised. And you remember what circumcision is. It's a Jewish tradition that the male would be circumcised on the eighth day. It was a sign of a national covenant between God and the nation Israel. You see that back in Genesis uh, chapter 17, verses 10 through 14. It was God-given ritual. But along the way, this, this thing that God had given them had degenerated to the point where some people thought, like here maybe in, in Galatia, that it was necessary for salvation. Again, the, the, the ritual, the event, was given, always given, to illustrate a truth. It was never about, uh, this is something that you need to save you. Uh, if you, you don't need to look, turn there, but you can write down Deuteronomy 10, 16, and you see really the true intention and the meaning, and, and that is where God says, hey, where, where it said, circumcise in your heart and stiffen your neck no more. You see, circumcision was an outward sign that was intended to convey an inward reality. And it was always about the heart. And it was the idea of a heart being trimmed of carnality and focused upon spiritual matters. Okay? People talk about Deuteronomy and say, oh, it's all about the law, the law, the law, the law, the law. Read Deuteronomy. There's a bunch of law. The name itself has the word law in it, right? 
But I'll tell you what, circle, put a little heart shape every time you see the word heart in Deuteronomy and then go back and thumb through it. It is all over the place. It's all about the heart. And that's what the law was all about anyway, right? Showing us that we can't do it on our own. That we have to have someone who can save us. Keeping the law, keeping any law, whether it be even a God-given sign like this or a ritual like this, doesn't save. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, we're told, God will circumcise your heart. In Jeremiah 4, 4, they're instructed, remove the foreskins of your heart. And the circumcision idea illustrated the desperate need for a man to have spiritual surgery performed on his sinful heart. But here it had degenerated down to this litmus test to see if you were saved or not. We see that in the book of Acts, right? Remember the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15? In Acts 15 verse 1, some guys came down from Judea and they began teaching the brethren. And here's what it says. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's wrong, right? Circumcision was never of any value to salvation. Romans 9, 6 says they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, right? Or Romans chapter 2, verse 25, if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. It's not going to save you. A great example of the fact that circumcision is not required for salvation was Abraham, the, the man that God gave the sign to, right? We find in, in, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we find the salvation of Abraham where he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's where he got saved. But it's not until Genesis 17 that he's circumcised. So it wasn't about salvation. It was about obedience to what his command was at the time. It was never a component of salvation. And so true spiritual circumcision was what's in view. And the Old Testament act of circumcision was a shadow of true circumcision. A circumcision which our text says, look at verse 11, that is of who? Christ. It's Christ's act, not Mosaic regulations doing this. It happens at conversion when the old nature as a dominating force is stripped away and a new creature has come around. It is a circumcision, verse 11 says, without hands. So what he's talking about here is something spiritually going on, right? It's not something that's a physical act. So ritualism like that fails because it cannot save, as the Judaizers were telling them that it saves. It also fails because it can't sanctify. Not only can you not be saved by ritualism, but you can't be sanctified by it. Some, some people believe that through ritualism, somebody can be made more holy. That's illustrated in our passage here in Colossians in two ways, two Ds, diet and days. You see that, in, look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, this hits a little more close to home for most people uh, because, like it or not, people tend to look around and judge other people's reality of their salvation based upon what they can see, right? Now, it's not entirely unbiblical. I mean, we are told to examine who? Ourselves, right? To see if we're in the faith. Look, see if the fruit's there, that kind of thing. And as a parent, you, you do tend to maybe look at your children or as an elder or a pastor, you do tend to look to try to help to understand how do you minister to them? Are they saved? Do they need the gospel or do they need help down the road of sanctification? So, so we do tend to judge people a little bit if we're not careful spiritually, their spirituality in this area. But here, the false teachers are pushing outmoded Jewish laws regarding days and, and diet on these believers. Now, we're not Jewish. I don't think probably most of us in here are Jewish, right? And, but we tend to make up our own little sets of rules, don't we? I'm talking about rules that are outside the Bible. And you can see it through church history. I mean, in the last century or so, it used to be a, like a really big no-no to play cards. And maybe even in here, there's somebody who goes, yeah, you shouldn't play cards, right? Got the, the jack, the guy with the, the sword in his head and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, dancing. Um, alcohol. Some of the things that come along with alcohol or, or tobacco or something like that. Things which may have a good basis, right? Should a 
junior high, boy and girl dance together and stuff like that. There may be a very good reason to say no to those kind of things, but it's not a law that you come down and say, you shall not ever dance or you shall not play cards or whatever. It's usually associated with something. And people say, well, in order to evolve the association, get rid of the associ association, let's just don't do this thing at all and that'll fix it. Again, that's ritualism and that doesn't fix it because it's really an issue of the heart, right? We need to go back to the heart, back to the heart, back to the heart. And so what we tend to do is, if we're not careful, make up a bunch of what we call gray area legalism issues and make rules as if they are God's law and impose them on people when we don't have scripture to back it up. This is very dangerous. There's been a lot of harm on that. Uh, what we should do instead of that is let the Holy Spirit work on a man, uh, bringing the word of God to bear on a situation and, and let the spirit work on his conscience to make clear what he should and shouldn't be doing and come alongside him to understand the truth of God's word instead of the supposed truth of what we've come up with. There's been so much damage done by this area by, I think, people who are exceedingly well-intentioned. But it comes down often to a Romans 14 kind of situation, which is the weaker brother, right? Where somebody says, well, you shouldn't offer, you shouldn't eat food that's been offered to idols. Now, if we had that kind of stuff going on, we might be tempted to make that kind of personal conviction for ourselves too, right? Uh, that we shouldn't really be supporting maybe a ministry that's going down the wrong path or something like that, right? But now you put that upon a person who doesn't have those same issues and you cause them to stumble. Or you put that rule out there and somebody in his liberty goes, you know what? It's just meat. I'm being a good steward of my money because I can get it cheap behind the temple. And now they're stumbling over it. Do you see the problem? Uh, Jesus was very, very harsh when it came to causing people to stumble, wasn't he? I mean, it'd be better what? what? What would be better than to cause somebody to stumble? Do you remember what Jesus said? Be better if a millstone around the neck, right? And thrown in, not just a millstone around the neck, walking around town, but what else? And thrown in the sea, right? How many of you would like to try that one this weekend? That doesn't sound fun at all, I'll be honest with you. Why is that a big deal? Because we are not here to cause people to stumble. We are to, here to help people out of the miry darkness, right? And you know what? We don't have to add to the Word of God. We don't need to subtract to the Word of God, in case, in case you haven't figured out. That's a bad thing to do. What we need to do is instead of coming up with all our innovative things all the time, is preach, teach, and live the Word of God out. And watch the impact upon a society around us as the Holy Spirit of God works, as he convicts, as he uses the law, the, the, the Mosaic law or the law of, of Romans 2 that every man has written on his heart, right? To work in their lives. When I was working in seminary up for Weyerhaeuser in Santa Clarita, I had a, a guy who was pretty rough around the edges and uh, he drove a forklift for us and he's, he's since died. But he, he used to come in my office. He knew I was in seminary. So he'd say, well, should I take off my shoes? It's the holy holies, you know, that kind of thing. Um, he came in one day with a little different attitude and it was like, you know, he professed to be, be a believer and he says, yeah, I'm just having a hard time. I said, well, how's your time in the Word of God? Well, he looks down at the ground. Not. You know, I'm just, you know, I work here all day. I work long days. It's hot. By the time I get home, I'm just, there's nothing left. All I want to do is sit down, turn on the TV, have a cold beer, and then, I, then it's time for bed. Well, a ritualist or a legalist might be tempted to run over and, and make a, a certain set of per things that he has to do or uh, start hitting on, why are you drinking alcohol, dude? What's, you know, don't you know that's a bad thing for you? It's imposing, you, know, you, you go a lot of different ways. What I chose to do is say, when you get home tonight, no matter how tired you are, why don't you just open the Word of God? And here's a couple of passages you can read, or you can read something else if you want. Just start, just start reading it. Just kind of discipline yourself. You eat when you get home, right? Yeah, are you too tired to eat? No, well, don't, you know, have, some living, have some living water and some bread of life, you know. He went, the next day he comes in. How's it going? Oh, man, it was great. You know, I started reading God's Word, and it just started working on me. And actually, when the next day, it was like a few days later, and he says, it started working on me, and I just couldn't put it down. And you know what? I didn't even want that beer. I didn't have time for any of that kind of stuff. I didn't, I didn't say anything about any of that stuff, you know. But he was just like, I was enthralled with a great Savior. So the rest of the stuff falls away. Look around this room. No, seriously, look around right now. Just turn your heads. Look around at everybody. Look at these people. What a sick bunch of sinners, right? 
Look this way. Same thing, right? But we have a great Savior. And every one of us here has things that need to be chiseled off to become more conformed to the likeness of Christ. Amen? Every one of us. You know what? He's working on us and his word. So we want to we sharpen each other and we want to help each other down that path. But we don't want to come up and create fake rules or fake systems to, to make it happen as if that were the magic thing that God forgot to put in the Bible. We have the word of God. All scripture is profitable for teaching, telling us what's right, for reproving, telling us what's wrong, right? For correction, telling us how to make the wrong right. And for training in righteousness, how to keep the right then right. You see what I'm saying? So that the man of God can be adequate, equipped for every good work. So you don't need a bunch of rules. We don't need to treat rules as if they are God's law when there's no scripture to back them up. We need to let the Holy Spirit do his work on a man and come alongside that process. And here he gives a couple that were, that were being hit on the Colossians there. First, diet. There were those who were pushing Old Testament dietary laws on the believers. Again, those were a shadow. Substance had come. They weren't the issue anymore. They were a shadow. What the purpose of the dietary laws primarily, some of them were healthy, right? But the primary purpose of the, the dietary laws was what? To keep the Israel, what? Picture this. Okay, Israel, Gentiles. Keep them what? Separated, right? I mean, it's hard to have them over for a potluck when you can't eat all this different stuff, right? I mean, think of the rules. Go to, go to Leviticus 11 sometime and just see the rules, man. Uh, it's crazy how much stuff there is in there and how complicated it was for them to have a meal. I mean, you could eat something that chews a cud and has a split hoof, right, like a cow, beef, but you couldn't eat something that chews a cud but doesn't have a split hoof like a camel or a badger or a rabbit or something like that. You can't eat if it divides the hoof, but it doesn't chew cud, so that's where the pig comes into play, right? The pork thing. You can't eat water creatures that don't have fins or don't have scales. Fins and scales, go have a good time. Shrimp, forget about it. Red lobster was not doing well in Bethel. You can't eat certain flying creatures like eagles, vultures, buzzards, falcons, ostriches, owls, seagulls. You can't eat winged insects that walk on all fours except for those that have joints in their legs. Therefore, locusts are okay to eat. John the Baptist, right? So today, go out to and enjoy a locust for me. But the idea there was a shadow. God's people are supposed to be set apart. They're supposed to behave differently than the rest of the world. Now what Paul says here, he says, don't let anybody judge you in that way anymore. That's interesting. Why is that? It, because the reality is here. And the reality, Mark 7, verses 14 through 19, which comes down to basically this idea, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles, but what comes out shows the heart. The kingdom of God, Romans 14, 17, isn't eating and drinking, but righteousness, joy, peace, and the Holy Spirit. By the time that Paul writes this letter, the food laws have been set aside. Do you remember this in Acts chapter 10? Remember this? Peter is in Joppa. He's at the house of Simon the Tanner, right? And he's, uh, he's up on the roof hanging out. Little beknownst to him, there's a, a cat named Cornelius who's praying to God. Now, Cornelius is a Gentile. Gentiles are not really in the picture quite yet. You know what I'm saying? So he's praying and seeking God. And God says, you know, now's the time. And God uh, appears to Peter in a dream, a vision, right? And he gives him this vision that does this. He, he, there's a sheet coming down out of heaven with all kinds of animals on it that are unclean, clean, whatever, you know, right? And they're coming down. All these unclean animals are coming down. And God says to him this, Peter, arise, kill, and eat. Now, when God gives you instructions, what do you do? Here's what Peter did. Tell me if it's right or wrong. By no means, Lord. I've never eaten an unclean thing in my life. God, who probably at this point is wondering if Peter's hard of hearing, does it again. And he says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. No, 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 no. Three times he refuses God. Finally, God says, hey, Peter, listen up. What I've made clean, you don't call it unclean. You understand that, right? 
Now, what was the big deal on the roof that day at Joppa? Was it about, oh, now we can go have, you know, bacon today? No, it was about the fact that the Gentiles are about to be brought in and the gospel is going to go forth through Gentile nations. Praise the Lord. That's where we come in, right? So and that's exactly what happens. Peter, now it's time to go. Boom, go over and see Cornelius. And he's got to explain this to the to Jews in Jerusalem when it comes around. Hey, this is what happened. This is what God's done. This is how it happened. And boom, everybody's going, well, this is awesome. God is now working in the Gentiles. So what's happening in Colossae, which is later than that, is guys are coming around saying, don't you know you're not supposed to eat this? Don't you know you're not supposed to do that? You are not really truly a Christian. And that was wrong. 1 Corinthians 8.8 8 says, Food will not commend us to God. We are neither worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. By the way, and you'll see this in cults, often there's an element of food involved somehow. You see this a lot nowadays. You're seeing a lot of um, vegan stuff that, or vet, vegetarian stuff. And hey, there's nothing wrong with being a vegetarian. You may be a vegetarian. I don't, I don't really care uh, if you are or aren't. But I'll tell you this, it's not commending you to God, right? Or if you only eat meat, I'm a carnivore, right? It's not commending you to God, right? That's what the Word of God says. And the point is that this is what's happening, is that people are going to come in and do this kind of stuff. And you see this over and over again in the cults, and it's just kind of a, I mean, the New Age movement really has grabbed hold of the vegetarian thing quite a bit. Occultism has some. Mormonism, you know, there's a word of wisdom about not drinking coffee or tea or colas. You know, there's always something and some kind of rule that's being added. It's not scriptural. First Timothy 4, 1 through 3 warns us that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, following deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, who, and check out what he says, who advocate abstaining from certain types of food. Isn't that interesting? That's what he says there. Of all the things he could have said. The inference is they abstain for spiritual reasons there in 1 Timothy 4, and it really has no value, is what Paul is getting at. If you don't want to have meat, that's fine. Don't have meat. But know that in Genesis 9, God said you could have meat. You know, any living thing's good for that. There may be health reasons why you don't do certain things. That's good. But don't think it's going to commend you to God is what I'm getting at. Hebrews 13, 19 tells us that we are strengthened by grace, not by foods, okay? Now, the other area of ritualism that the false teachers were promoting was special days, diet and days. They were saying that a person could be made more holy by observing special days. And Paul gives these in verse 16, if you look there, three types of days. You have festivals, new moons, and the Sabbath, okay? Festivals were annual days. They happen once a year. New moons are, guess what, monthly days, right? Just like a new moon comes once a month. And the Sabbath day would be weekly days. And they're still around people who hold some of these different views and things like that. But you know, those annual ceremonies were pointing, just like I talked about with the Passover earlier, or Pentecost, they point to something else, right? So we don't do a Passover Seder anymore. What do we do? We do, I mean, you may do one for, you know, some some historical reason or pointing to the, 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 the substance from the shadow, that kind of thing. But, but we have the Lord's table, right, that we do. So in the Old Testament, you had the, the, the Sabbath, and in the New Testament, you move to the Lord's day. There's changes that are going on. All the Ten Commandments were repeated in the New Testament except for the Sabbath. And there are people, there are still people who say, you know, you have to do the Sabbath. And there may be people in here that think that, right? I don't know. But that's not the deal. Now, one in seven, day of rest, things like that, good. Uh, 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 every day is the Lord's, though. And in the Old Testament, it was the Sabbath, which, by the way, if you're going to keep the Sabbath, you're not here on Sunday. You're messing it all up. It's yesterday. You missed it, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, it was the Saturday, the Sabbath. In the New Testament, you have the Lord's Day, which is the day the Lord rose from the grave. And so people were celebrating. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath was a, was a, a symbol, really, of, of completion of work, right? That's the Lord on the seventh day rested after creation. The Lord's day is the beginning of work. He's raised from the grave, and now we're going out and following him and, and carrying on the work of Christ, the acts of our Lord Jesus Christ, so to speak. And to the Christian, don't make any mistake about this. Every day is holy. Every day. So it's not a matter of I've got to observe this one day and like the, you know, a Seventh-day Adventist might tell you you have to do that or you're not going to be saved. He's wrong, okay? 
you're saved based on your relationship to Jesus Christ, which is what most of this passage is going to talk about. So ritualism can't save, and it can't make you holy, and it's a mistake to follow ritualism or legalism. Just don't make that mistake. I heard of a fellow who attended a legalistic college where, where students were required to live according to some really very strict rules. Nothing wrong with rules, but these were just kind of crazy ones. One of them was you were to never do any kind of work whatsoever around the house or anything, almost like a Pharisee, on Sundays. None. Well, the story plays out. Guess what happened? One day he, he, he's resting, and he looks out the window. Don't know, must not have been enough work in that. And he sees his wife outside hanging the laundry. Do you know where this is going? He calls the school officials and turns his wife in for working, working on Sunday. I bet she was a bundle of joy to be with for the next day or two. That's not what this is all about, okay? Don't get caught in the bondage of ritualism and legalism. What the Bible teaches is how we should live. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Don't sear your conscience. If it's your conviction not to do this or that, go for it. But don't be imposing it on other people, right? That, that's a failure aspect. When you follow the path of ritualism, it is not going to help you down the Christian walk. The, the success comes, and this point two on your outline, is in the Christian reality, Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Here, spiritual baptism, this isn't a wet verse, okay? This is a dry verse. This is spiritual baptism that's in view here. It's not physical. And it'd be odd, by the way, to talk about circumcision as a spiritual thing and then move over to a ritualistic act where you're going to supposed to be doing this baptism thing uh, just as a, a mere uh, regular uh, ritual. It would be odd to point to circumcision as spiritual and then replace it with a physical act. Better, what he's, he's talking about here is what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. We are baptized into a body of believers. Now, not to get off on the subject, you've got baptism coming up next week, right? If you haven't been baptized and you're a Christian, go get baptized. It's what the Lord commands. That's not a ritual, okay? It's an obedient step of faith that the Lord called you to do. Everybody who is a Christian is supposed to have been baptized as a believer. Amen? I'm not talking about, yeah, I was baptized as an infant, now I've given to faith. Get baptized, right? Still get baptized. It's a, it's a great, it's an encouragement to the fellowship. It's a great statement where you get up to get a chance, I guess, probably here to, to, to share your testimony, tell what the Lord's done, and, and encourage other believers. And maybe a person who's there who doesn't know Christ, here's your testimony, here's what God's done, and comes to faith as God opens their eyes. How cool would that be, right? What, what reason would you not do it? There's no reason. The only reason, there, there's a reason, it's pride, Right? I don't want to get up in front of people. I, I can't speak in front of people. Whatever the thing is, don't go there. God asks you to do it. He will give you what you need to do. Just do it, okay? Be faithful. You're not earning anything from him. You're being obedient to him. But what's in view here is it's dry. The, the, the baptism shows what's happened in our, in our regeneration. But there's a baptism spoken of in the Bible that talks about how we are placed into Christ as believers, like 1 Corinthians 12, 13 that I mentioned earlier. Not everybody who goes through waters of baptism is saved, truly. I think you understand that. But the emphasis here is on the spiritual condition. Verse 12 says it's happened through faith. So there, there's, a, there's a reality that's going on here that's really important. As a believer, you have been changed. You have been altered. He has circumcised your heart. You have been given uh, 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 the Holy Spirit to indwell you, the Word of God to guide you, and there's a new reality now. And this is good. And this Christian reality deals with three things that you have on your outline. They're the grief of sin, the guilt of sin, and the grip of Satan, all right? Look at verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions. I love this. You were dead, that, that's devoid of sense, right? Can't respond to stimuli, you know? I've done a lot of funerals, I've been in mortuaries, I've been where people have died too many times, all right? But I can tell you one thing I know about dead people, and I'm not, uh, I'm not a mortician or anything, they don't respond to stimuli. 
right? I can go in with a sharp object and poke a dead body and they don't ever go, ouch. I can go in if they were an alcoholic with a bottle of whiskey and wave it in front of their face and they go, whoa, I'm really being tempted, right? They're dead, okay? And we were dead. We were dead to him, right? We, had, we, had, we saw what we saw. We, we wrote it off and said it wasn't a reality. We're professing to be wise, we became fools until the point where he opens our eyes. When the gospel comes, he awakes uh, 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 us up to it and we're no longer dead. That's the beautiful part there in verse 13. He made you alive. You didn't make yourself alive. He did it. That's beautiful. It says he's having forgiven all our transgressions. Boy, it's hard for folks to grasp this. It's hard, isn't it? I mean, just do you ever struggle with, I've been forgiven for that nasty, dirty, rotten thing I've done? It's okay to nod yes on that because we do struggle in that area, right? All of us do. But what does it say here? Having forgiven all. Oh, that's sweet. That means the stuff I did in the past, the stuff I've done in the present, the stuff I'm doing, I'll send, you know, this week, right? It's just going to happen. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'll probably run after it at some point. But even when I'm not, I'm going to sin. That's just, I'm fighting the flesh along the way, just like you are, right? But he's forgiven that. We don't run after it going, oh, really? It's all forgiven. Let's go have a party. No, no, it shows your heart's not new. If that's, if that's your perspective to run towards licentiousness. You hate your sin because of what it, what, what it cost. But he forgave it all. And, and when, when people have a hard time uh, understanding that and grasping that reality of our forgiveness, uh, that's when ritualism really becomes temptation legalism. So I can start having things on lists to check off. So I know I'm really kind of keeping the course in spite of uh, my struggle in that area. God has totally dealt with the Christian sin on the cross. And verse 14 describes it. When he wiped out the guilt of Sinai, look at verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Amen? It's beautiful. I love that. He canceled it out, wiped out. It's like the dry erase board. The whiteboard's right. You know, you write something on it, you just, it's gone. No, no, a good whiteboard, you don't see anything, right? Just gone. The certificate of death, that was a word, death, that's a word that's commonly used for an acknowledgement of a financial obligation, right? This is the thing, you owe this. What did it consist of? It consisted of the decrees against us, that is God's broken law, whether that was Moses's, right? Or that which is generally given to all men, Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. And we broke his law, it became this debt, the wage of sin is death, Right? And it was hostile to us. The idea of the hostility there is this debt is like the bill collector, right? He's calling, he's hounding, he's coming after you until he gets it. But praise the Lord, he has taken it out of the way. That is erased it and nailed it to the cross. And see what the point is there. What's nailed to the cross? That means it perished on that cross. When Christ died and paid that penalty. Is that awesome or what? That's why Christ cries out to tell us that, right? That's why it's finished. The debt's paid. You don't have to earn anything. You don't add anything to it. It's not like the Mormons say where I'm saved by the grace of God plus whatever I can add to it. No, no. You're saved. I'm saved by the grace of God, period. And it's only by the grace of God that I can keep on this path and walk to his glory. It is finished. It's done. That's the most beautiful statement in all of Scripture is that a lost soul can be alive and can be moved from the poorhouse into the king's house. That's beautiful, folks. And we need to live in, in view of that because that is the Christian reality. We are declared innocent. Our debt has been paid and we have been redeemed. And as such, Satan doesn't have any power over us anymore. Do you understand that? I can't stand it when Christians say, well, Satan really got me. No, he doesn't just get you. He has no power. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, right? You have been delivered. The Christian reality is you have been delivered from, let her see, the grip of Satan. He, he doesn't have that control. It's talked about there in verse 15. Look at it. 
When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed, having triumphed over them. The, the word there, public display, is the idea of a victory parade. You know, generals and chariots and soldiers, after a battle, they would march into town. Uh, there would be a great triumphal parade. Enemies chained, <laughs> being led through the streets. That's the way they used to do it when this was written. What, what happened with Christ on the cross is that victory was done. And he made a public display of them. I, I think that's what First Peter 3 is talking about, by the way. When it says that Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. I think that's what we're talking about here. This, the word proclamation there, by the way, in 1 Peter 3, is not gospel sharing. Some people say, well, he went down and shared the gospel with him. No, no, no. It's, this word's never used for preaching the gospel. It's, it's the word that's kind of like what we're talking about here in, in uh, Colossians 2. He, it's declaring victory. It's that kind of word. So he goes and he declares victory to the spirits that were now in prison. People say, where was Jesus when he died? That's part of where he was when he died, Right? He went and he declared to these spirits who are now in prison. You say, well, who are these spirits now in prison? Well, you know, I believe that they're probably the, the folks in Genesis three verse, or 6, verses 1 through 3, right? If you remember the, the, the sons of God who cohabitated with women, you remember that story in Genesis 3? And it was like this vile thing. And the Lord said in verse 3 there, My spirit will not strive for with man forever because he is also flesh. Never his day, last his days are going to be 120 that kind of thing, and God judges those, those folks. And Jude 6 talks about it as the angels who did not keep their domain, right, like Genesis 6, but abandoned their proper abode, and were, he's kept those, listen to this, in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Eternal bonds, that is permanently bound. Now, a little angelology for you. If you think about angels, you have, okay, angels, right? In the beginning, we've got angels, right? Angels fall in two groups, okay? You have the holy angels, elect angels, sometimes called, and you have fallen angels, right? These are demons, okay? These are the ones that left with, with Lucifer, all right? Then with the fallen ones, you've got two groups sub to that, right? You've got loose angels and bound angels. Loose angels are demons running around causing havoc and stuff these days, right? And then there's some that are bound. In the bound group, you have two categories as well. You got some that are eternally bound, Jude 6, and you got some that are temporarily bound. Those are the ones that are going to come up in Revelation chapter 9. You got your angelology all settled? I don't know why I went off on that. But anyway, here's the story, all right? There is this sense where, where Jesus, having proclaimed his victory, he went to somebody who was eternally bound, right? That's the group, follow the tree all the way down to the eternally bound people, right? Our, our angels, the demons. And he goes down and he says, victory is mine. Satan had thought he had taken the whole thing and won the day when Christ was being nailed to the cross. But the reality was, Satan lost it that day. And it's fullness. Satan's victory place was really Satan's place of defeat. Now listen, if ritualism and legalism fail, if, they cannot say, if it cannot save, if it cannot sanctify, and if, as, as is the reality, the Christian reality does deal with these things, the, the grief of sin, the guilt of sin, the grip of Satan, all these things have been dealt with in the Christian reality. Let me ask you a question. Why in the world would we step back into that which does not work? Why would we not bask in the reality of the Christian faith and not try to add a bunch of rules or add a bunch of rituals to try to make this thing feel like it's more real to us. There is no reason when you have the substance to go back to the shadow. I'm old enough to remember when kids were coming back from Vietnam. I wasn't very old, but I remember it because it's a big deal. And uh, I remember seeing on the old black and white flickering TV these guys coming home, the ones who did, after that ordeal over there. And there's an iconic video that shows this one guy getting off, he's dressed in his uniform, and he comes down the, the little gangway off the plane onto the tarmac, 
and is behind a little velvet rope. They've got all the wives and family and everybody waiting over there. And his wife sees him. <laughs> it's him. And she just busts through the rope and she runs out there and she just wraps her arms around him and gives him a big old smooch. I mean, she did not go out there and start kissing his shadow, right, folks? He went out there. She went out there and because it's precious. Look who it is. Look, he's here. The reality is here. I've seen the letters. I know he's still alive. I've got the mail that he's going to be coming back, but there he is, the reality. I will never bask in just the letters. I will never bask in the shadow anymore because I have the reality. Folks, that's where we are in Christ. We have the reality, we have God's truth, we have God's word, we have the substance. We no longer need shadows. Unless we look back at those shadows, like she might look back at those letters and remember the faithfulness of God and what he's done and had our faith strengthened. We're not tossing out the Old Testament. There's much great truth there. There's many examples that went before us, but we live in a fullness of revelation of Christ, the substance, manifest. Maybe you don't know the Christian reality. Maybe you do know. If you don't know the Christian reality, can I just implore you to ponder Christ, consider Christ, that he came, that he became flesh so that he might redeem you from the grip of Satan and the guilt of Sinai and the guilt of sin. He came so that you can be reconciled to a holy God. That's what the cross was about, so that he could pay the, the penalty for your sins, so that the, the certificate of debt could be canceled out. As you put your faith in him, he will by no means cast you out. He will redeem you. He will empower you with his spirit. He will give you his word. You get hooked up to a good fellowship of believers like this, and you follow him with all the days you got left to his glory, striving to be more and more Christ-like by his grace. If you're here and you are a part of that Christian reality, but you find yourself maybe leaning towards a dull Christianity, a Christianity of ritual rather than reality, doing it out of duty rather than out of desire, can I just call you back to the substance? Remember what he's done. Boy, when we start hopping on the duty train and we start hopping on the, the, the ritual train, there's, one, there's something out of whack. I'm not saying there's not a duty. There is. I'm not saying there aren't even rituals at times. There are. But I'll tell you this, if your heart is not with the reality of Christ, those things become motions that we go through for whatever reason. Maybe so we look good before, in front of our peers as we're part of the group. Or maybe because we think we're supposed to because of my wife's looking or my family thinks they want me to be a certain way. That's not real, man. There is one who loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He gave his life to give you life. That's a relationship, and it's an awesome relationship. Get back to the Christian reality and live a vibrant Christianity before a watching world to the glory of a holy God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning. We thank you for your truth. Lord, we do have a tendency to grab onto lesser things instead of the, the, the Christian reality, our, our Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Forgive us for that. But Father, we ask that you would work in each of our lives so that we would have a vibrant Christianity that, love, that exhibits the love of Christ manifest in our life and toward others. In Christ's name, amen.